One, two, three. The following is a Laura Flanders Show audio exclusive. When Nobel Peace Prize winner Nelson Mandela came to the United States after his release from prison, he visited Detroit. There he was greeted by a long line of dignitaries and political bigwigs. But Mandela rushed past all of them to embrace one person, Rosa Parks. It's a remarkable scene captured in a new documentary about Mrs. Parks, which is streaming this month on NBC's streaming site, Peacock. While Rosa Parks is best known to Americans today, I think, as a sort of national treasure, the little old lady who sat down on a bus and, as the RNC once infamously tweeted, ended racism in America, the documentary, directed by Yoruba Richin and Johanna Hamilton, tells a much, much fuller story. Based on the book by the same name by Jean Theo Harris, this first ever full-length doc about Parks shows her to be what Mandela clearly recognized, namely a tireless global freedom fighter. The Rebellious Life of Mrs. Rosa Parks premiered at the Tribeca Film Festival this summer and is rolling out with a comprehensive curriculum for schools. It was executive produced by today's guest, the award-winning journalist author and philanthropist Soledad O'Brien and Soledad O'Brien Productions. Welcome back to the program, Soledad. It is so great to have you. Thank you so much. Nice to see you. Congratulations on the film. I had to keep pinching myself that this was really the first ever full-length doc about parks. Hard to believe, really, yeah, it's isn't so it? It's so hard to believe, isn't it? it? It actually just sounds completely not true. But but, you know, I I think that's part of this idea that everybody thinks they know the story of Rosa Parks. They get it. One day, kind of accidentally, she refused to give up her seat. And yes, at the end of that, you know, entire thing, that was a boycott. And then eventually the boycott was ended and there was some legal stuff that happened. She ended racism. The end. And so I, I think because we don't really know the story of Rosa Parks, it's very easy to believe that there have been 10 docs done on Rosa Parks. And everybody knows that story, um, which, of course, is just not the case. So when Yoruba and the and, your, and her co-director brought this project to you, why did you think it was so important to do right now? Yeah, you know, uh, for a couple of reasons. Uh, Johanna Hamilton and Yoruba Richin were um, in contact with the author of the book by the same name. And I think it was Johanna who said, that she always found it so fascinating when the author would tweet about Rosa Parks. And, and, this, and she kept thinking like, I didn't know that. I didn't know that. I didn't know that. And I, I think it was one of those, as horrible as social media can be, Twitter friendships that developed into something important. And so uh, I think for all of us, it was a sense of like, oh my gosh, there's so much we didn't know. Who knew that Rosa Parks was a, a fan of the Black Panthers? Who knew that Rosa Parks was a fan, as much of a fan of Malcolm X as she was of Dr. King? And what did that say about this vision that we had of Rosa Parks where everybody knows her and yet even you know Hollywood celebrities can't identify this woman who's called the mother of the movement? That's an interesting way to open the documentary, I thought. It is a fabulous way to, to open the documentary and the idea that that footage existed that that moment happened it was all it all blew my socks off um I just was participating or watching anyway at a distance the uh, 90th anniversary of the homecomings at Highlander Center right and Highlander Center the the folk school in in Tennessee was one of the places that Rosa Parks uh, attended and, and got some training which was um, a center to to that believed that their true integration could happen and if you think about the the era in which they were even doing that. I mean, it's it's hard. I mean, I'm, I'm 
I'm from an interracial, you know, my parents were an interracial couple. So like, I find it hard still to wrap my head around the idea that they were doing that so early with this idea of what, what they thought America could be, what, what the potential uh, of race relations could be, you know, absolutely stunning. And that she was part of that um, from the early days as well was remarkable. Yeah, I mean, Ashley Wooded Henderson, one of the co-chairs of, or co-directors of Highlander, says, by any means necessary means by all means. Yeah. And, and that is kind of, as you point out in the documentary, what Rosa Parks, Mrs. Parks, embraced, a variety of strategies and tactics, um, for which I have to say she paid a price. And that's something that you also draw out in the doc. Can you talk about that? And was yeah, that news so, to you? Yeah, very much so. Because again, I think in the narrative that we have, she was tired, her feet hurt, she didn't get up, there was a boycott, there was some legal stuff, it all ended, a racism went away. Uh, it leaves out, well, what actually happened to Rosa Parks at the end of the boycott? And in all seriousness, we know that she never was able to work again in Montgomery. Her, she and her husband couldn't work again. We have this, um, this tax return that showed that they made just under $700 one year. I mean, they were really in poverty. And, you know, and what happened? How, how did the woman who's the mother of the movement suddenly get sort of ignored by people who were making money off the movement in speeches? She was constantly on the road. How is it possible that, that someone like Rosa Parks, who played such an important role, also was kind of left out of the narrative and that the, the important piece of she never worked again. In fact, racism was not solved. In fact, there were many more obstacles to go through. Uh, she had to go to Detroit where she continued her fight in, in some very rebellious kinds of ways. So it's, it is, it's just another indication of how far that narrative strays from the, the facts of the case, if you will. Talk a bit about how you think it's a big question, but how do you think things might be different? Our understanding of the civil rights movement, our understanding of women in the civil rights movement, our understanding of what it is to be an activist mm -hmm. and to make change, how any of those things might be different if we did get a fuller picture of, of people like Rosa Parks. Yeah, I always like just accuracy, you know, and so I think from that perspective alone, it's important. So we might be right. That's right. good. <laughs> Correct. Uh, but, you know, I think I think that. Um, I'm always curious why people love that narrative of the accidental civil rights activist, right? Just one day, just happened. Who knows, wasn't even planning on it, just happened. And of course, when you know her whole story from the time she's a small child until her death, her activism was in her blood. It was in fact not accidental. It wasn't just something that happened around her on that one day. And, and so I, I think it really, explains how you have to fight for civil rights and a lot of things, right? It's a long game of, of trial and error and going back and going back and losing sometimes. I mean, there's a point where um, Rosa Parks is assigned to go take the testimony of, of Reese Taylor, a woman who's been raped by four white men. And they tell her, if you, if you tell anybody, we'll kill you. And she, she can't get any kind of, and she knows she's not going to get any kind of legal repercussions to happen. So she's telling her story to Rosa Parks, who's gone out quite a far way to, to in the rural area to get her story, a police car driving back and forth, you know. Um, and I always am struck by that, like this idea of like, the victim knows, Reese Taylor knows, she's getting no justice. Rosa Parks is there, you know, taking the dictation of what happened. She knows there will be no justice. And yet they both of them are there saying like, but it actually matters. A record matters. The truth matters. Having a record of what happened 
maybe it won't make a difference here, but at some point it does make a difference. And I always loved that part. Like she was so involved to put herself, I mean, it was obviously a very risky thing to do, but also to just care enough. Like I'm going to go and take a testimony of a thing that I know in my lifetime, most likely will never be righted. And there she is anyway. And I have always just found that very remarkable. Well, that I think is what I bring to 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 my work in journalism and you too. It's like there are so many activists out there, so many regular people out there who are willing to take such risks to tell their story. The responsibility then on us journalists has to at least match that or partner with it to some degree. Do we think we do you think we're doing that job? Are we doing it more better? I mean, there were journalists at the time, mostly African American, working for black papers in the day who were covering the civil rights movement in a whole different kind of a way. But for white reporters to cover that story took a lot. As we've said, it took decades even for this story to get told, and it's such a great one. Yeah, I, I think that um I think people are trying. You know, I, I do think that um whenever the platform changes, right? So whenever suddenly uh, white journalists realize that the civil rights movement was a thing and it became a big thing, then, you know, sort of the, the platform kind of opened up its aperture and everybody saw these other things happening. And I think that's happened today with social media, that these things happen and they don't go unnoticed. Suddenly somebody says, oh my gosh, this is happening over here on social media. And then they start reporting on it and telling it. Um, right. A, a good example would be the parents after the school shooting in Uvalde. Right. This idea of like, oh, well, they 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 they're saying something different. <laughs> if you read through what they're writing and what they're posting and what they're saying, it's it's not the line that matches what the police are saying. It's, it's actually very different. And so I, I do think we are getting better because there's more access and we're being held more accountable and there's more ways to get that information. But I mean, you know, as well as I do, you know, early on in any kind of um, uh, police involved shooting, let's call it that, right, that there was one version. And that usually came from, you know, the, the police put out a, a, a press release. And then, you know, I was one of the journalists who pretty much dutifully, you know, police say just after 7 p.m., <laughs> a man in a brown car, <laughs> right, like that was the job. Uh, and now I think we understand like, oh, there's probably more sides to this. And how do we tell this story um, without hearing from anybody or trying to get more versions of what happened? Did you say you were the journalist who For did sure. that kind of notation? Uh, listen, I, one of my jobs when I was in local news, you know, we did the perp walk and you realize that the perp walk was, I, I, here's why the perp walk was helpful if you're a journalist. If you're opening chapter, if your opening lines need to be John uh, Robert, Stevens, da 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 da, right? Um, is that someone's real name? No, I don't think so. Let's hope not. It's <laughs> a hypothetical people. I probably should use someone I know who at least wouldn't be bad at me. Um, but you know, you need seven seconds of video, and a perp walk covers that very nicely, right? Boop, boop, boop. We see the guy walking, we say the name, gets me into my story. But often the perp walk was faked. The person was already booked and incarcerated, right? They would just take him out, walk him around the building. You know, journalist, it was very helpful. Thank you. But you realize as you grow up and as I eventually were like, oh, my gosh, I'm I'm contributing to a system where like this is not OK. This is not good. And do you remember when you kind of the scales dropped from your eyes? I never covered a lot of crime, so it was very rare, but it was really as I just got older and understood, you know, for example, you start seeing first of all, those cases, you never follow them up again. 
I, I, I didn't cover crime very much. So certainly I was never going to do the same story over time for the most part. Um, but I think you just end up realizing like whatever happened, oh, that guy was completely um, exonerated. Oh, they, they acquitted his case. Like, wow. Or the whole thing went away or it turned out he wasn't the right guy that somebody else now has been arrested. I mean, I think you just become better at your job and you begin to realize that you're part of a system that is not serving the public, but it's certainly helping you to get that seven seconds that you need off the top. And a walking shot's a really good use of seven seconds. It's a tough business. I mean, journalism, no question. And journalists typically get the grief when they're working in institutions that are really hard to work for and, and in some ways have gotten harder to work for as more is demanded of fewer people for less money or with an intention of making money for shareholders. Um, right now, there's a big debate happening online in the Twitterverse about access and what is good journalism and what is good journalism in the current context of a run-up to a political campaign when a whole lot of candidates are riling up their voters using lies. I don't know where you want to start with this, but I know you're very active in commenting on how mainstream media work these days. Let's start with that access question, would we? I mean, Maggie Hagberman's getting a lot of praise and also grief for her new book, um, uh, Confidence Man. She's a legendary New York Times reporter, daughter of a legendary New York Times reporter, had a lot of access, clearly held back some stories for publication. Um, what do you think about all of that? And what is access to you? I think that there's confusion that somehow you can't both be a good reporter and also leverage your access in order to report favorably on people for whom it'll help you later if you say something nice about them, right? There's this idea like it's this, either you're an amazing reporter or you're a terrible reporter and you're an access journalist. And I, I don't think that's true. I think you could be a very, very good reporter. In fact, I think that access often gives you a lot of access. <laughs> it gives you insight. It you, If you're a good reporter, you can really get some great insight. But I think I have seen lots and lots of evidence um, for a bunch of different people, but I think she has met many, and I sometimes post them about, you know, ways in which she likes to frame her stories. And you always have to ask yourself, well, why is the framing this way? Who does this framing help? Who is it serving? Is it serving the readers? Is it actually, I mean, there's a good one that I posted the other day, which is of, of the day of the January 6th insurrection. Um, a reporter, I can't remember who, basically posted a picture of like, this is what's happening at the Capitol. And it was very dramatic. And Maggie Haberman posted, you know, similar protests for the anti-Trump and an anti-Trump. But you're like, it would not similar at all. They never took over the Capitol. Nobody have created a gallows, you know? I mean, it was just not accurate. So, so then you have to say, well, let's talk about that. That's an interesting thing to tweet. And it's not, hey, the first six minutes of this protest looked like any other protest. This was after somebody else had already posted something very dramatic. Um, so I always ask myself, but so what's the framing? Why is a lot of these stories framed as, I would say, very positive toward um, Jared Kushner, very positive toward, you know, like that's a weird thing. The capital is being overrun by insurrectionists. And you say, boy, very similar to protest. <laughs> yeah, thousands so, of people over here and a hundred people here. Listen, Two sides and both sides good of the story. Access will help you write a good book and her book will do very, very well because I'm sure it's full of really interesting nuggets. But access is access. And I think that you you use, people understand the quid pro quo. It makes perfect sense that you are not going to piss off a person that you need for your book 
it makes sense to me. And so I think I, when I do an interview, if I'm sitting down with someone, I don't ask them the hard questions at the beginning. Hey, let's start with the tough stuff first, right? Because then you can just walk out and my the, uh, the interview I've been slotted for 10 minutes, which I have to put together when we get back, I'll have nothing, right? You start off with like, let's just talk, right? And then you go in for the jugular as you get closer to the end, understanding as has happened to me a few times, person whips off their mic, you know, and they put it down and they walk out because they're mad. It's a it's a metaphor for how it works, you know, when you're working on a, a, a big long-term project, you need that person. You need that person. What are you going to do? You're going to you're, you're going to make sure that they understand you're a friendly. So is it on the reader to understand that's what they're reading or is it on perhaps the paper or the media outlet to have people with a different kind of access have a similar kind of profile in their plot on their well, all of the above one i think that i think it's very hard to be a day day to day reporter who then also goes and writes a book because there is a tremendous overlap i think if you're writing a book you're writing a book if you're reporting daily and obviously it's very hard to have some kind of a wall up when you need this person later for your book right let's be real there's just no version where you say oh no no it didn't matter to me at all if I never got to speak to the main character of my book. It's just not, a, you know, so I, I do think it's a, a real conflict of interest. And I think it's up to the news organization to, to manage that. Sure, I think it's why I always tell readers, what's the, read it and tell me, read and find out what the, um, you know, what the framing is. That'll give you a, a host of information. And of course, you know, I think it's, journalists should not be holding on to information. And I have no idea what information Maggie Haberman is told about. I have not the slightest idea, but, you know, journalists should be, again, serving the public, not trying to position themselves for a book. Yeah. I mean, you know, the publisher said what's in here that isn't already oh, been in the wait. papers. So. Oh, anybody who's written a book, that's how it works. What is the <laughs> remarkable story that you have to share? What's different? So, Let's talk a little bit about this campaign that reporters out there have to cover. And then I want to come back to Rosa Parks. Um, it is a crazy time to be a political reporter. Uh, you can't just keep saying they're lying, they're lying, they're lying. But you kind of have to keep saying they're lying, they're lying, they're lying about some of the candidates that are out there. Not all. What's your advice to people reporting this election story who perhaps want to do something different or do it differently? I think it's not hard to be very clear so first of all, I do think if someone's consistently lying, whether they're a politician or they're just a guest you have on the air, it's standard procedure to not, if I came on your program and lied every time and later your fact checkers are like, oh my God, she made up so much, you would just not have me back. You would literally say it's disrespectful to me. As a journalist, to, to have her on the show, she just makes stuff up. It's not okay. And I think you can do that with politicians. And there's a difference between spinning and overt lying. And I think that anybody who overtly lies to you as you have them on a guest should not the election be was stolen. Blah, blah. Right. They should not be invited back. They do not deserve to be on any kind of program. And unfortunately, I've seen so many people, right, the, 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 we know they're saying lies and that they're invited back and welcomed back. Right. They're they're So I think that's problematic. I also think that you can call out and, and highlight hypocrisy if there are senators who vote, who, who talk about aid for their state in the wake of a hurricane, but then vote against that very aid. I think that's an important point. That's a headline. And highlighting hypocrisy is really important. So there are ways to do it. I don't think you have to love the person you're covering. I don't think you have to hate the person you're covering. I think you can just be very straightforward and, and honest about it. And I think 
we all know what is a lie and you should call a thing a lie. Uh, I think if someone misspeaks, you can say, well, they misspoke. They, we've all bumbled our words and said something backwards. But we also know when someone's outwardly lying. And so I think, again, I've always just said, serve your audience, serve your audience. Your audience first. Um, let me go back to, to Rosa Parks for a second. Jean Theo Harris, who wrote the book on which the documentary is based, is is fond of saying that to present Rosa Parks as this kind of national treasure is to demand nothing of us. Um, but to tell the more complex story of Mrs. Parks, as, as you do in this documentary, does demand something. Can you talk about that a little bit? What what perhaps damage or does the sort of pacification of treasureness um, do to some of our radical leaders? Yeah, I think um, I would say, you know, if you know all that you know, it could make you feel a certain way, right? Like if you know, I, would, would George Bush be giving her an award if everybody knew that she palled around with the Black Panthers? Would she have a statue in the Capitol if people knew that she respected Malcolm X tremendously and she thought, you know, by any means necessary was by any means at all? Um, I don't know. I don't know that 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 would have happened. And so I do think it does ask a, a lot of us um, because we are made uncomfortable and we have to figure out in our head, how do we hold these things? Because she looks like a little grandmother, um, but she was not. And you just have to ask yourself about the whole woman and not just this tiny little sliver in time. You have to ask yourself why, how is it possible that she lived in poverty? How is it possible that she was both the mother of the movement and no one cared enough to, to see if she was gonna survive um, and, and, and have work after the movement or the, her part of the movement? So uh, yeah, I think, it's, I think they're tough questions and they ask, they ask you to be uncomfortable and we don't like to be uncomfortable. Do we report women, especially women of color, worse than other people? Yeah, I think generally. I, I mean, I think there's no surprise that women were left out of the narrative of the civil rights movement. I mean, even, even those women who were really support staff, who cooked and organized and did kind of background stuff, often didn't even get credit for the background stuff that they were doing. And the women who were in the foreground doing a lot of work didn't even get any credit at all either. So it's it's not a surprise to me. I think there's been a fair amount written uh, about that. And, and I like that people recognize it because I think it's one of those things that then you work to um, to reinsert people's names into history, right? To remind everybody, oh, no, let me just remind you, no, this is how it really was. It had to be, in one of the reviews I saw, one of the articles about the documentary, it was pointed out that the statue of Rosa Parks was unveiled on the very same day that the Supreme Court heard oral arguments in Shelby versus Holder, the, the, the case that ultimately took federal oversight, the Justice Department, out of the Voting Rights Act. We love... To live. Irony. We love to, and we love to live comfortably with complete hypocrisy. Right. Again, there are people who will think it is totally fine that Marco Rubio voted against aid for Florida while also, um, you know, saying he wanted aid for Florida. Right. And we people will totally not understand and be completely fine with the fact that every single thing that Rosa Parks was fighting for that was won was actually to a large degree lost on that very day where people were celebrating her life and her actions. Right. I mean, it's just tremendously hypocritical. And I think, again, we don't like to be uncomfortable. I, 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 sometimes you feel like you're the, the, the party pooper, right? Top, you know, pointing out like this terrible, this was happening at that moment where everyone's saying the loveliest, nicest things, 
They were literally dismantling her life's work. Live with that, people. Live with a little complexity out there. All right. Um, we saw, we, we often report on this program about, um, frankly, city and community development projects. And I, and I happened to notice that you had spoken recently at the International City and County Management Association. Um, why them? And what was your message? So interesting. Um, one of the things that they wanted to talk about was stress. And actually, I mean, if you think about, which was fascinating, if you think about all the businesses that run the business of your city, they're having problems keeping people in jobs, right? Just like any big organization, people are now uh, interfacing with a public that is angrier, more hostile, more divided, uh, and their workers and the people who are the managers are completely stressed out. So they wanted to talk about um, race relations. And we I, I came in to actually talk a little bit about diversity. Um, but I was so fascinated by the things that they're there for is to really figure out same thing that any big organization is. How do you how do you how do you serve your city and how do you move off from the polarization to make sure that your city is serving the people who live there regardless of how they vote? And do you think we are moving in that direction? I mean, I, I think of Rosa Parks working in John Conyers office, you know, just imagine the person working there in your congressperson's office might be a Rosa Parks of today. Be nice to them. Yeah, it's hard. I don't know. I don't know. I, um, I think people are very grateful to have the support, but I don't, I don't know. It's a really crazy time. And I'm not a Pollyanna. Like I'm never going to sit here and tell people what they want to hear. I'm going to tell them what I think is true. And so I think it's a really stressful time for people who work in city government. I think it's a really stressful time in general. And, um, and we're very polarized and that's just the, the facts. Well, we're going to let you go in a second, but I can't let you go without asking you a little bit about how you got to where you are and maybe who helped to get you to where you are. I, I see you now referred to a tra as a trailblazer, the OG. As, as you move um, I don't into know how you age. feel about any of that. There was a time when I was like 40 under 40s and then, you know, and then, then you know, it happens. Yeah. Then Sooner or later, you'll be a treasure. Watch you'll out. You'll be a treasure and a legacy <laughs> award winner. Um, yeah. You know, I, I, I will say, I think my, one of my biggest strengths is that I've always been very good at finding mentors. And a lot of the advice we, my husband and I run a small foundation, we send girls to school and I'm often telling them like, be open to feedback and be open to people who will mentor you. Maybe they mentor you for a day. Maybe they mentor you just for a month or six months or, or they become lifelong mentors. But I think you can really learn a lot from a lot of people. And I was very lucky. I had a ton of people who just gave me great advice. And, and then some people whose lives either inspired you or scared the crap out of you where you're like, oh, I never want to do that. <laughs> I will not do that. So yeah, I, I but I, I'm a very good sponge of that stuff. And, and it's the advice I give, like learn from everybody. You know, everybody has something to teach you. Which reminds me that you've actually developed a whole curriculum around this film and you're planning screenings in schools or for school groups. How will that play out? What yeah. can people do? Yeah, and why did you think that was important to do? Because I don't think you could talk about changing a narrative and then ignore an entire generation of young people who are going to be taught the same things that we were taught. Jean Theo Harris, the author, is um, is doing that work for us as well. So we're really excited to continue to work with her. She's remarkable. And, um, and, and bring that story to, you know, the real story, the accurate story. It's funny is that I actually think young people are so attuned to that these days. I think so many of them are interested in like, well, what really happened? Um, maybe more than when I was a young person. So uh, I think that they're very much ready for it. 
it is striking to be reminded of just how hard it is to do the work she was doing. Um, you know, we sometimes get, I think, particularly in our fairly, you know, unidimensional social media world, you know, heroes and villains, as you mentioned, sort of celebrities and everyone else, to remember just how hard it is to do this work and how long it takes, I think is comforting for activists out there and young people wondering about their lives. Yeah, it's a it's a journey. It's a real long, I mean, that's and that's the fact. It is not a one-day event. It is not a short-term accidental. Civil rights is a battle. It is a fight. And it you have to continue to work on it for your entire life. And you get a bunch of grief. Yeah, at every step, yes. <laughs> We have some opportunities to invite um, viewers and listeners to engage with your project. What's the best way for them to do that? Great. We're running um, on my Twitter. We're running uh, clips of the uh, the doc. Um, so that's at Soledad O'Brien, one word. And it's going to stream on um, NBC's Peacock Network, their streaming service, on October 19th. So check it out. You have had an amazing career, and I appreciate you being out there in the world. I also particularly appreciate you having started your own multimedia independent production company. Can you tell us a little bit about why, why now, and how it compares to the work you've done in the past, usually at the employee of different networks? Yeah, you know, I have really enjoyed it. Although the first, this is our, we're going into our 10th year. Our first two years were hard, you know, because I you call yourself a CEO, but what does that mean exactly? And what what is your mission? And what are your values? And what do you want to do? And what do you want to create? And as we um, have had some tremendous successes in the projects that we pick are very much what I think is important. We have a doc streaming on HBO called Black and Missing, which looks at all the missing Black women and why the media and why the law enforcement often don't seem to care very much. You know, so I think it's the questions that I have and projects that I want answers to. And and, you know, one thing that I, I like it better because everything you do is in your own control, which really means that you work 24 hours a day, but um, but you don't go and report on stories that you don't ever care, you know, that you don't care about. I remember being on a story once and just being like, I shouldn't be here. I'm, I, there, I, there's, I don't, I'm not adding value that I'm here and I'm away from home and I, I want to do the work that I'm that I'm interested in. And, and that was a really, you know, good start of a sign. I remember pitching to a, a executive at CNN right before I left. Um, I said, we should do a doc called Poverty in America and really look at the changing face of what poverty is here. And he said, quote, ew, who'd want to look at that? And I was just like, and I should go. <laughs> because I, I, you know, I, I think that's important. Like I'm- Well, that brings us back to the audience question because the CEOs of the networks will say that exact point and they'll say, look at the ratings. And we can't always promise that docs about the face of poverty will get great ratings. I can promise And yet we you, do believe I, it's important to do. I, how, do you, how do you balance that? I can promise you the doc I do on the face of poverty would get great ratings, partly because a lot of that is about, is about um, a promotion. Right. It's about talking to people and letting them know where they can see it. And under I think it's an important issue. I mean, we had the same issue when we did Black in America for CNN. You know, there was a real worry. You have a, a, a overwhelmingly white audience. You're calling it Black in America. Well, executives don't make it too black, <laughs> which is kind of funny, um, you know, but but I get it right. They're saying don't scare away our main audience, please. And you know what? We grew the main audience. We grew the white audience and we grew the black audience because often I think what they think is going to happen is just completely wrong. This idea that two congressmen yelling at each other is good TV is a farce. It's not. I know because I compete with the shows that do that and we win. We beat them by a lot. People want to understand. They want to understand breaking news. Our top rated show, for matter of fact, was about the 
um, the Puerto Rican grid being so in such terrible shape that people were going out on their own to build their own solar systems, right? Like, and, and could you imagine going into a newsroom and saying like, whoo, do I have a story? Okay, stay with me for a second. The grid, you know, <laughs> of course not. Two million people watch that show. I, I, I just, I, you know, and so I think our, the things that we think are compelling, the drama, the fighting, the infighting, are not. People are like, I actually want to understand what's happening. Can someone explain gerrymandering, please? You know, when the president is sworn into office, what exactly is he swearing to? I'm, I'm not sure I know. And, you know, I we have been able to build a pretty successful show out of that because we don't want to do the yelling thing. So I, I you need a lot of people around you who also want to do that show. Um, but I think often they're just wrong about what they think works. Well, I want to believe, I want to believe, and so far so good at our end too. Um, and on that grid question, maybe a show about why that old grid failed and a solar power grid, maybe community owned, might be a good idea, would be a great new follow-up. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Great solution. I think people are super interested. Listen, Soledad, thank you so much. I don't want to keep more time. We always end every episode by asking people what they think the story will be that the future tells of now. And I don't know whether you've had a, a second to think about that, but the story the future might tell of this moment, perhaps in, in journalism, um, what do you think? Yeah, I think the story is going to be the journalists were very challenged, but some people were able to really force them to do some self-examination. That's the, my biggest um, frustration. You know, people don't want to say, gosh, did I do it wrong? I, I talk about mistakes I made all the time. I don't mind. I'm happy to, I did them. They exist on tape somewhere. Like, it's okay. Let's fix it. Let's get better from it. And I think we just need more introspection. So I hope the story is, you know what? They really recognize that the world was shifting and they, and they decided to change. I appreciate that. Soledad O'Brien of Soledad O'Brien Productions. Great acronym. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Nice to see you as always. 